I want to ask you something this morning, and before I do, I'm going to preface it with what happened this week. Uh, where I work, we had our grand opening, and in the grand opening, I saw a lot of old faces, uh, people that uh, I went to church with 25 years ago, and uh, it was nice to be able to see old faces kind of reconnect with them, see where they're at. And um, one of the things that was in the back of my mind is who's going to church and who's not, right? Who's going to church and who's not? A lot of years have passed. A lot of heartache has been absorbed by a lot of these people. And some people have gone by the wayside. They've left church. Others have gone to other churches uh, where they have chosen to fellowship. And um, try to hear, me personally, I try to hear where are you going to church and why are you going where you're going? And often the reasons given are the youth group. We wanted our kids to be able to connect. It was really important for us. Um, the music. The music is, is, we love the music. Um, we li- it's close by. Uh, there are some old friends of ours that are there. And you could go on and on and on. And those things are all good. They are good. But when those things become the core of why you're going to where you're going, I think that both you and I have deeply missed God. And I'm, and I'm going to try to argue for that. Why this morning? And my question to you is, does God fuel the reason for why you live? I'm going to get a little excited here, so uh, just hang on. Okay, kids, hang on. All right? Because I'm coming at you too. Does God fuel the reason for why you live? Does God fuel the reason for why you do what you do? Does God fuel the reason for why you exist because if he doesn't something else will it's just the way it is it's just the way it is something else will so if you and I and our lives are not orbed around the one who is self-existent and who has created all things then we are going to step down from our design and we're going to make ultimate that which is created finite and cannot ultimately satisfy us. We are all here in different stages in our lives. Some of you, you're not even in high school yet. Others are in high school waiting to get out of high school. Some of you are in college. Others of you, uh, you know, are married and have a young family. Some of you are single. Others of us are on the downside of life. We're over our 50s. Our kids are growing. They're making their own decisions. And we are beholding what we are beholding. One of the things that we all have in common is this. There are only so many ticks on the clock that we have. God has allotted us so many days to live on this earth. And so what are we doing with them? What are we doing with them? Go to 1 Timothy. Close to the back of your New Testament. Just mentioned earlier, we're going to be putting on a seminar. We're calling it right now, Trusting God's Word. That's not the final title. I don't know. But regardless, the reason for why we are putting it on is this. It is my view after walking with the Lord for quite a few years and the conviction of um, our pastor, that the number one reason we either grow or don't grow, the number one reason we flourish in our Christian walk or don't, is because we either don't understand who God is. Now, we understand who God is minimally in degrees. But in the church in the last, I don't know how many years, there has been a gross neglect of the Word of God. And as a result, we are reaping 
the fruits of a people who are really, really confused about the God of the Bible. And so, I think part of the reason that is, is because people don't have confidence that God has spoken. They don't believe that they can trust this word. So they are trusting somebody else's word. Again, you can't get away from that. And neither can I. So let's pray. Father, help us see who you are this morning. Captivate our hearts and minds. Open up our eyes that we might see you. That is our greatest need. And I ask that you would do this in the name of your Son who rose again from the dead and secured our redemption. Who's coming back for us. And I pray this in your name, Lord. Amen. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are what's called the pastoral epistles. Paul the Apostle, in, in the later part of his life, wrote instructions specifically to Timothy and to Titus. He wanted to make sure that they understood the things that they had to focus on in order to fulfill their duties as servants of God for the church of God. And in the first chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul establishes several things. I just want to read from verse 1. We're going to go to verse 1 all the way to 17. I'm going to focus on 17, but I want you to get a feel of what's going on here. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, according to the commandment of God our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, who is our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, strained from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. But we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully, realizing the fact that the law is not made for right, a righteous person, but for those who are lawless and rebellious, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers and immoral men and homosexuals and kidnappers and liars and perjurers and whatever else is contrary to sound teaching, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Verses 12 through 17, you've got... Uh, a situation that Paul finds himself in, and then we see his response to that situation. Verses uh, uh, 12 through 13, he is thankful for Christ's kindness. This kindness put him, put Paul into service. Not that he was worthy of such an honor, but as St. Augustine put it, God does not choose anyone who is worthy, but in choosing him, renders him worthy. Paul had a former life, like us. His former life was a horrible, despicable, religious existence. He was a blasphemer. 
He was a persecutor. He was a violent aggressor. He was the enemy of the church. But God did something. God moved in time. And Paul here is grateful for Christ's mercy. Now note in verses 13 to 15 that he, was, he had prior ignorance. He thought he knew, but he didn't know. He was unwitting. He was persecuting the church. And at the same time thinking he's doing the will of God. Yet God chose Paul. Christ's mercy toward him was super abundant. It was the great exchange of unbelief for trust in God. Of insolent pride and violence for a love and a life that is willing to lay his life down for those he loves. He's also clear on Christ's purpose. Christ's purpose was to demonstrate his great patience toward vessels of wrath. In saving Paul, that is what God was doing in that man. And by showing him mercy, Paul's past life and his consequent conversion, we see, was ordained by Christ as an example of how we who are vessels of wrath prior to conversion can be vessels of mercy. The bottom line here is Paul is saying, look, none of us are worthy. God is merciful. There is wrath to be rescued from. And that is what this great gospel is all about. And so in verse 17, he responds. And he responds with a doxology. He responds with praise and worship. And I want to look at that verse 17. I want to see that doxology. I want to know why is Paul so elated. I want to know who Paul is focusing on. And I think that his response is super, super instructive. And there's going to be two things we're going to look at. We're going to look at what is the nature of true worship. And what is the object of true worship? I'm going to say that the nature of true worship is historical and it is spontaneous in this text. And number two, that the object of true worship is God, is the Creator. Period. End of the story. We can go home now. So, verse 17 says, Now to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So when, I want to define my terms here. First of all, we're, when we're talking about the nature of something, we're talking about its essence. We're talking about its whatness. We are talking about what it is, as opposed to what it is not. When we're talking about true worship, we are talking about there is a way things really are and ought to be. There is a specific way that God has revealed in Scripture about who He is, how He is to be approached, how He is to be worshipped, and what that looks like in a believer's life. There's also a way that we can falsely worship God. Recall the woman at the well in John. In the Gospel, she's talking about what she understood of what it meant to worship the one true God. Jesus ends up saying something we all are familiar with if we've been in church for any uh, uh, duration of time. That those who worship God must worship Him in spirit and in truth. And among other things, one of the things that is clear is this that the God of Scripture is true, He exists, He's real, and that if He is going to be worshipped, it must be buttressed by His truth, on His truth, by means of God the Holy Spirit. So there's a historical, spontaneous aspect to this worship. It's grounded in events. It's not a made-up story. And these events culminate in a person. 
Jesus of Nazareth. They culminate in the fulfillment of what was previously spoken in his birth, his life, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, and ultimately his return. This has been Paul's contention concerning the gospel. He's been a recipient of God's merciful offer of salvation in Jesus and he's become an object of God's kindness. Have you become an object of God's kindness? Can you tell? Is there a difference? What you say with your mouth evidenced in, in, in some way in how you live. Because that is biblical Christianity. Biblical Christianity is not saying a prayer. Going down the aisle. Getting baptized. And now you're in the kingdom. And then it doesn't matter how you live. That's ridiculous. How do you know you've got a, a, an orange tree? You can respond. How do you know you have an orange tree? What do you know? Who knew? You get an orange tree, right? Okay. Yes, true, an orange you get an orchard from that tree. Anyway, the point is this. The evidence of our profession, however imperfect we are, and we all are imperfect, the evidence of that is, do you love Christ? If you love Christ, you're going to obey Him. You're not going to obey Him perfectly, but He's going to be the one that your life is orbed around. And if your life is not orbed around Him, there's at least two things going on. Number one, as a believer, you're slipping. And my encouragement to you is come back. Or number two, you think you're His and you're not. God knows I don't. But that is something that each and every one of us have got to look at. Got to consider it. So he argues, Paul argues for the historical necessity of his message in 1 Corinthians 15. Remember the, res the great resurrection uh, chapter where he says, look, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our faith is futile. We're still in our sins. And you should pity us more than anybody else because we think that something actually happened in space-time history that did not occur. Do you hear Paul? Do you understand if this stuff didn't happen, really, and the events in Jesus' life were not faithfully transferred to us in this book, and this is made up, we have no hope. We are wasting our time. We are wasting our money. And we uh, should be pitied more than anybody because we're real fools. However, Paul ends that chapter because Christ did rise from the dead. He said, be steadfast, immovable. Always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil in the Lord is not in vain. Why? Because He's going to reward each and every one of us according to our deeds. Your life's not in vain. So here, his response is truly earth-shattering. It is filled with joy. It's spontaneous. I want to talk to those of us who want to measure everything we do and want to uh, just know everything that's going to happen, you know, point one to point a hundred whatever. Listen to me. God is the God of order and, and He is the God of order. But there's also something to be said about spontaneity in life. That mirrors the image of God in a way that maybe some of us aren't comfortable with. Kind of like some of us aren't comfortable with being really organized, right? I mean, tend to be one extreme to the other. Nevertheless, there is a spontaneous uh, uh, um, praise that he gives. He's testifying of his experience. And he's testifying it with a doxology. Now, a doxology is a spontaneous ascription of praise to God. Where God is given glory and honor and praised are ascribed to Him. 
Now there's about four elements to a doxology biblically. The first one is there's an object that's being considered and it is God. God is the object of the doxology. 1 Timothy 1.17 we see it. The second thing is there's an ascription of glory. Okay? Which properly belongs to God and God alone for who He is and what He has done. Third, there's also the temporal expression here. We are creatures of time. The expression here is forever and ever. God will forever and ever be praised. And it'll be anything but boring, anything, uh, uh, it will not be uncreative. The aesthetic textures that we will experience of worshiping God will be like unlike anything we have experienced here because we have the battle with sin. And we don't see clearly still. And that's a battle that we have as believers. And then it always ends with Amen. It always ends with amen. So Paul's spontaneity here is an overflow of beholding Christ and unfolding the gospel. I want to talk about this a little bit. You can't praise what you don't behold. I can't praise what I don't behold, what I don't see. I can't appreciate what I don't understand. And I certainly can't pursue what I don't value or treasure. Think about it. You can't praise what you don't behold, you can't appreciate what you don't understand, and you can't pursue what you don't value or treasure. I hope you're starting to see or feel the necessity and the importance of getting the gospel, understanding it as Paul reveals it to us in the scriptures. For believers, you will not grow in your sanctification if this isn't happening. A couple weeks ago, Pastor Joe talked about the righteousness of Christ that is imputed to the believer. Your righteousness is really not, it's not yours. It's Christ's and it is imputed to you. It is credited to you. Which means you can't work for anything for God to accept you. Which frustrates the pride in human beings. And breaks those of us who see, it just breaks our hearts and go, Oh God, really? You love me? You ever feel that way? You ever feel so low and all of a sudden the Lord just says, I love you? That you're just going, I can't believe this is happening. I can't believe this is real. I mean, when I was a teenager and I got converted... You've probably heard me say this. The first couple of weeks, I would come home every day from work, go into my room and bawl my head off. And the reason that was happening was because I couldn't believe that God would have mercy and want somebody like me. Do you ever feel that way? Have you ever felt that way? And, he's, and His kindness towards you gives it. For the unbeliever, if you do not believe in Christ, it's because of this. You don't see. You don't understand. Therefore, you will not pursue. And my, I, I, am, I am convinced that our greatest need as image bearers is beholding God as He has revealed Himself in two books. The book of redemption here, specific revelation, and the book of nature where He does speak to His creatures through what He has made. He does. And as we behold Him, 
we are more in awe, we are more humbled, more grateful, and we flourish more as we were intended to live. So in other words, what's going on here is this. As Paul beholds this God who has no equal, who owes nothing to His creatures and needs nothing from His creatures because He is self-existent, He's utterly self-sufficient. There is no more joyful being in that exists than God. So the nature of true worship, okay, it is historical, but it's also spontaneous. And secondly, the object of true worship is God. It's God. It's the God who has revealed Himself here in this book and in the big book of creation. Paul is elated here. He's elated because of God's kindness towards sinners generally and towards Him specifically. When was the last time you felt happy, guys? Really? And you felt happy over this. You're having a dry spell. I know what that's like. I hate those. But God is ultimate, not me, and He's not done with me. You having a dry spell? That's not where your hope is. Your hope is in the God who raises the dead, who is at work in you if you're His, and He's going to complete it until the day of Christ, who has given you His Word so that you might know Him and walk with Him and truly experience what it means to live a life that is full. So what does He do here? He's elated in the person of God the Son. He's elated in the person of Jesus of Nazareth who causes him to burst into a praise. And this is where the transcendent God has stooped down to save finite creatures. Needy people like you and you. And you. And you. And me. Why do people choose to go to a church? I, I brought that up earlier. When we came here over 14 years ago, my family was not happy with my decision to leave where we were. They had established relationships. And that's hard to leave relationships. I mean, I understand. But there was something really clear to me that I was looking for something that I thought was missing in a lot of the other churches that I was at. And look, this isn't a put down on them. It doesn't mean I love God any more than they do. It doesn't mean that um, only what I see is real and, oh, you think everybody else is wrong and you're, and, and you're right? No, of course not. But I do think there are people that see more clearly than others, period. And I, I won't back down from that. There are people that are better than certain uh, people at what they do. And that's okay. It's okay to admit it. We have a hard time admitting that somebody's better than us or that somebody knows more than us or that, that somebody's uh, relationship with their spouse is better than us so we just hide it. You just go on and on and on and on. Always comparing ourselves to one another. That's bondage on the one hand. If we're not using those examples to help us grow and to encourage us to Alright, where do I need to grow? That's a great example. I like, I like how Joe treats his wife. Okay? I need to do that. I, I, need to do, I like that. There's three doxologies 
in the New Testament, in Paul's writings that I'm going to read. First of all, it's Romans 1.25. It says, For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worshipped and served the creature rather than the Creator, who's blessed forever. He's, he's going into praise after uh, revealing something horrible that the creation and the creature said, No thank you. I don't want you. And Paul is praising God for it. That's weird. But it's not original in Paul. Matthew chapter 11, toward the end, Jesus praises God the Father for hiding who Jesus is and his mission to the proud and revealing it to babes. That is a weird text. It doesn't fit what we think about God ought to be about. Very odd. That's kind of odd. Romans 11.36 He buttons off chapters 9, 10, and 11 with this. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's in the context of God will have mercy on whom He will have mercy. That is in the context of the naughtiest texts in Scripture when it's talking about divine sovereignty and human freedom. It's talking about election being chosen by God. There's a lot of disagreement in the body of Christ and, and he's going, look man, from him and through him and to him are all things to God be the glory forever and ever. Amen. That's a naughty passage. K-N-O-T-T-Y. Naughty. And then Galatians 1, 3, and 5. Grace to you and peace from, and, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. Here he is going into praise of the plan of God. He's part of it. He's stoked. He is elated. It's a doxology. It's spontaneous. I want to say this. All worship has a subject-object relation. Subject-object. What determines the value of our worship is the worth of the object that we treasure. It's the worth of the object that we delight in and value. I'm going to say it again. All worship has a subject-object relation and what determines the value of our worship is the worth of the object being treasured. Take for example, I've got a five-year-old who scribbles. Right? And I'm so proud of this five-year-old. You know, some of you probably did it. Um, you, 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 look at that great work of art. It's garbage. I mean... Not that they're garbage, but it is garbage. I mean, come on. It's scribble. It's, it's nothing, but it's okay. It's okay. And you're going to compare that, and you're going to go, wow, that, you know, I'll pay a million bucks for that. Okay? And then you go to the museum. Um, you know, let's say you go over here to, what's it called? The museum? Huh? The Getty, right? And what famous painting is there? Give me one. Thank you. And then you're looking at the Rembrandt going... Yeah, I, you know, that Rembrandt's okay, but, you know, I, I'm going um, to, I'll, I'll give you a buck for that Rembrandt. Something's wrong. Something, something's off. Something's weird. You innately know the Rembrandt, of course, is worth more than the scribble of your child. And you love your child. And they're adorable. But don't confuse your love for your child and the value of what they just produced. Don't confuse that with the work of art of a Rembrandt. Now, if there is no truth, it doesn't matter. You can do that. Right? There is no truth. If that's true for you, great. If that's true for you over here with the Rembrandt, great. What's the point? This is the God of truth that actually exists and is the ground of all things, of that which is true, beautiful, and good. Because there is a God who exists, things are a certain way. They have a certain order. Note this in verse 17. The object of Paul's worship is first of all, the king. Now to the king. 
Who's he talking about? Who is this king that he's talking about? Is it the Father? Is it Jesus? Some hold that because almost all the doxologies are addressed to God the Father, that it's also here addressed to the Father. I don't think so. Doxologies tend to be addressed to God the Father and not to Jesus Christ. The only divine actor in this context, however, is Jesus Christ. That's what I get from the context. So, for example, first, uh, 2 Timothy 4.18, speaking of Jesus, Paul offers this doxology. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and will bring me safely to his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The idea of God as king is, a, is an Old Testament idea. In Isaiah 6.5, this is a famous passage. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Psalm 10.16 says that God is king forever and ever. Jesus in the Gospel of Matthew constantly is talking about the kingdom, the king. He reveals himself that he is king in front of Pontius Pilate. If my kingdom were of this world, my subjects would fight for me when Pilate asked him, Are you a king? Yeah, I am. We live in a country that does not have a monarch. There's a serious disconnect. It's a challenge for us to appreciate what it means to be, to be before a monarch. Probably the closest thing that we, we can uh, uh, come in touch with, if you happen to be in the courts and you're, you have violated um, a law and you are before the judge... Uh, if that's ever happened to you, have any of you ever been before the judge because you've broken the law other than me in here? Yeah, okay, one, two, three people. Okay, four? Okay. Um, it's a really intimidating place to be. It's scary. You, you are in touch with something that you don't experience every day. It's called authority. But this kind of authority has the power and the authority to make your life really miserable. It could send you to jail for many, many years depending on your crime. So when we're approaching God, I, I wanted to read Isaiah 6 on purpose. When Isaiah beheld God and had a vision of Him, okay, I haven't had a vision like Isaiah did, but I have seen Him in here. And I have beheld Him intermittently in my walk and things I see things and they are utterly humbling they're frightening and they bring comfort all at the same time Jesus is called the son of David he's called the king of the Jews now if this doxology is addressed to Christ in verse 17 then it is theologically significant this is really important. Am I losing anybody here? Are you guys burning up? No? Good for you. Hallelujah. Because if this is true, then what comes into play here is our understanding of the Trinity. Okay? So I'm just going to give you a snapshot, a Trinitarian snapshot, which should help us 
understand the transcendent qualities of the King. So, doctrine of the Trinity is essential to Christianity. You take away the doctrine of the Trinity away from Christianity, you don't have Christianity. You take away the resurrection from Christianity, you don't have Christianity. You take away the God who was there, Creator, you don't have Christianity. You take away the atonement of Christ, you don't have Christianity. The pillars. Getting those things right is critical. To your walk with God, to you not being led astray. So, if the doctrine of the Trinity is false, we are worshiping God falsely. We're damned. According to the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. Okay? That's the first thing I want to say. So I'm going to give you a little definition. A little definition, right? Of what the Trinity is. Within the nature of the infinite, which means this God who is and is self-existent, eternal God, there is simultaneously exists three eternal persons. Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. They are co-equal, which means they share all of the divine attributes equally. They are co-essential, which means they are, all three persons, God, divine. Where things get confused is when we're talking about what the roles are of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. That's where things get muddied and get confused. I'm not going to get into that right now. But it's important to just kind of get a little taste of this. Because when it comes to Jesus, we are talking about the God-man. We are talking about Jesus being fully God, fully deity, and full humanity. And when we're not clear on this, it really messes things up. First of all, Christ is fully God. John 1, 1, the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Okay? You can do all the playing you want syntactically with that. It's God. It's, it's talking about Jesus. He's the uncreated Creator. Number two, Jesus was fully human. We see this snapshot in His life, in the Gospel accounts. He was born. He was hungry. He grew tired. He got angry. He rejoiced. Heck, he sang a hymn. At least one. Last Supper. He was human. He walked with the people. He was known as a carpenter's son. That's what he... He was fully human. He was not a third thing. Half God, half man, you get this third thing. No. He was not that. Both of his natures, this is really important, both of his natures are distinct. That means they cannot get mixed up. And you're going to see why that is logically. Okay? So I want you to keep the doctrine of the Trinity and of Christ, brief as that was, in mind as I continue. Now, I want to say something that is controversial, as if I haven't already said at least one thing that's controversial. Right? Here we go. The God of Christianity, of historical Christianity, is not the God of Jews or the God of Muslims. Now, Jews, Muslims, and Christians all come under the rubric of monotheism, which means one God. There's only the Christian view of God that is Trinitarian. I've said this to people that are, are Catholics and they think I'm a horrible person for saying it. They disagree with me. I'm not convinced. Okay? I, I just, I don't see it. I don't see it. And the reason I don't see it is because the son of David came on the scene in space-time history in the fullness of time and said, before Abraham was, I am. And if you want to know the Father, the only way you're going to know the Father is through me. 
And how did he back that up? The grave could not hold him. He was sinless. Jesus was not on the eschatological radar of Jewish redemptive understanding of how God was going to come and redeem Israel and rescue sinners. They didn't see it. The disciples didn't even get it until after the resurrection. This king, this description of this king, he is transcendent. When we're talking about that God is transcendent, what we simply mean is this, that he's greater than all of creation. You can't circumscribe him. You can't say, oh, there he is. Got him. Can't do that. He's completely different. Apart from all of creation, which contradicts the monistic, the pantheistic worldview that says that God is part of this all thing. It's part of the universe. Not scripturally. But God, while He is transcendent, He is also eminent. You know what that means? That means that He's present and He's here right now. You can't see Him physically, but He's here. That should comfort you if you're in distress and feel all alone. Like nobody understands. And that should make you uncomfortable if you're enjoying a life that's not pleasing to Him in secret. It should make you uncomfortable. It should make me uncomfortable. I hope you're feeling this. So we're considering the one who's totally different from us on the one hand, but has stooped down to fellowship with us on the other hand. That's the marvel of Christ. I mean, that's the marvel of the gospel. You can't make this story up. Are you kidding me? So first of all, he's eternal. He's referred to as eternal. Now what does this mean? Well, it can refer to the age to come, which comes from a Jewish concept of, of time. He is the God of forever. Uh, and as king, God rules in the past, in the present, and forever, in the future. Psalm 90 verse 2 says this, Before the mountains were born, or you gave birth to the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now in His humanity, Jesus took on flesh and dwelt among us. He was born. So in the incarnation, something happened that previously had never happened. God became a man. Yet in his divinity, Jesus had no beginning. He has always been. He is. So he's the eternal God. He's the eternal one. He's immortal. And this describes God as the one who is imperishable and unchangeable. This is a big deal to me the older I'm getting. I'm wearing out. <laughs> this is becoming very precious to me as me seeing, wow, nothing stays the same. Nothing stays the same that is created. No relationship stays the same that is started. Whether good, bad, indifferent, it just doesn't stay the same. There really is no such thing in, 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 the, in these terms as anything that's created that's static, that is unchanging. That's all. 
believers, unlike his mortal creatures, he's incorruptible. Romans 1.23, you recall, we exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for corruptible images. Believers will have an incorruptible, resurrected body. I'm looking forward to that day. I'm really looking forward to that day. I'm looking forward to the day when the pain is done and um, the rest of forever I enter into with my precious Savior. Do you ever long for Him like that? I mean, I certainly don't long for Him like that every day. I have moments like that. Do you have moments like that? Lord, help us have a few bit more moments like that. We're too, too comfortable in this world that is passing away, Christian. We're too attached in a godless way, in an unrighteous way. I think he can be attached in a righteous way. My experience and my walk, it's the unrighteous way. This idea of God being one that does not change is all over Scripture. I just want to go to one text, which is Hebrews. And in Hebrews 1, here's what the writer of Hebrews says. You, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old like a garment, and like a mantle you will roll them up. Like a garment they will also be changed, but you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. In Hebrews, it talks about Jesus Christ who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In, in the Bible, for the last 2,000 years, its theologians, pastors, have wrestled with this issue of God's immutability, which means He can't change. How can He not change? In His essence, He can't change and be trusted. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Gospel is the same. It will not change. Why? Because the God, who is the gospel, does not change. Have you experienced the pain of trusting a relationship that you thought was one way, and it's like, oh my gosh, it's another way. And it just, to the heart. I may have even been the perpetrator of it. In his humanity, Jesus actually died. In his divinity, he can't die. That distinction is important when you're talking to somebody like, for example, uh, the modern-day Arians like the Jehovah's Witnesses, who say that Jesus is a God, but He's not God, the Creator, uncreated Creator. You've got to have these distinctions in your mind when you're conversing. So that you can teach them to your children, by the way. And I encourage you to teach them to your children as they're little kids. Start teaching them the doctrines of grace. Start teaching them the doctrines of what it means that God is self-existent. Just share it with them as best as you can. Do it over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. He is not only eternal, immortal, He is also invisible. Okay? So He, in one passage, says that He dwells in unapproachable light, whom no human has seen or is able to see. And that's in 1 Timothy 6.16. So this idea of God being invisible is not... God is never described as invisible in the Old Testament, but the idea is absolutely there. 
Exodus 33, 18-20, when, uh, when, uh, when Moses is on Mount Sinai, and he says, I want to see your glory. And God says, you can't see my glory, dude. You can't see my glory. No man can see me and live. Okay? So what do we do with that? How do we reconcile these? Well, deal with it in a little bit. This points to the reality that God is spirit. That's why he can't be circumscribed. That's why you can't see his essence because it is invisible. Just like I can see Lindsay right here, I can see her body, I can't see her soul. I can't see her thoughts. They are immaterial, they are invisible. Well, where does that come from? You're creating God's image. In that sense, you're creating God's image. You're reflecting the Creator. Definitely that you have a soul. Now, He created you to be in a body, but He doesn't have one. But, oh, hold on a second. The God-man took upon a body. I'm telling you, this is mind-boggling. God is spirit. The only way you're going to know God is if the Son reveals Him to you. Jesus said, No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Guess what? You're at His mercy for that. You don't all of a sudden show up one day and choose to see God. I don't see it in Scripture. I just don't. Now, He's the only God. He is the only God. But this God that is Spirit, again, Jesus was the God-man in His humanity. We did see, handle, smell, and we eventually killed Him. But in His divinity, you couldn't see His essence. You couldn't. All, you could, all He could point to was his works. They are the effects of that he exists and he's there. And that what he's saying about himself is true. So when we're talking about that God is the only God now, this is the central affirmation of Judaism, the Shema. Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And you're going to teach your kids about that the Lord is one. In every context you're in. When you're laying down, when you're waking up, when you're, when you're going about, doing your work, going to the baseball field, going to the beach, going to the mountains, going to work. You're going to be talking about this great God. See, parents, you are the primary teacher your children have, biblically. It's a heavy, heavy responsibility. And it is a glorious honor. So thank God for it. And forget about the past. If things need to get better. And just move forward from now on. Feel like a failure? Don't worry. We're all failures. There's only one who is not a failure, and that is the perfect Father. And our big brother, our advocate, our king, Jesus. Therein is your hope in parenting. So to the only God. This means there is no other God. This means that he is completely and totally exclusive. This means that in our culture today, we are despised. Because we think this is true. God forbid they're so tolerant that if we view things differently than they do, then, oh, we are the scum of the earth. Is anybody home? The I don't even know if the light's on. How can you tell me you're tolerant when somebody who disagrees with what you think is true you can't stand? You start calling names. You don't give arguments. Arguments are hard work. You call names. You use whatever power structure you have to move your biased agenda. 
Don't kid yourself about that you're tolerant. If there is no truth, tolerance is a joke. But you can't get away from living like there actually is this ultimate ground of truth. Can't get away from it. What is it? Is it the creature or the creator? So, to the immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul begins the section, verses 12 through 16, by thanking Christ and finishes it by ascribing honor and glory to Him, to God. God should be treated with respect and dignity. That is, do His name. Believer. Revelation 4.11. Let me read this to you. says this of Jesus. Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things. And because of your will, they existed and were created. Guess what? If this is true, Darwinian evolutionary naturalism is false. And if that is true, this is false. They contradict each other. So whose word are you going to ultimately trust? Which authority are you going to ultimately trust? Everybody has to do that, and everybody does do that, because everybody is not an accident. You actually were created by a designer who had you in mind specifically to honor and glorify His name. Why? Because He's the ultimate. And so for Him to uh, uh, step down and have you ultimately glorify that which is created is absurd. It is the Rembrandt against the little scribble. It's ridiculous. So of course he's going to say, look, glorify and worship me. I am your greatest good. And yeah, <laughs> I don't need your worship, but I've created you. Why wouldn't you do that? You wouldn't do that because you don't see. You wouldn't do that because you don't understand. And you will not do that because you do not value can't praise what I don't see. Right? Can't pursue what I don't understand. Definitely not going to value what I don't treasure. Remember when Jesus, in, in what's called the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, the disciples' prayer, whatever you want to call it, He says, this is how you need to pray. He begins with, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. Hallowed be your name. And most assuredly, this would apply here. Amen. The term amen is an invitation for congregational assent with the meaning, so be it. It's been suggested that the reader of the letter was supposed to pause at the end of the doxology so that the listening congregation could say, Amen. So, I'm going to button it off. Is God the reason for why you exist and live and have your being? Is the person of God the engine of your life? And does that govern how you live? It did for Paul. It did for Paul. And what we saw here in Paul is this, is that because of who God is, because of God's kindness, Paul is moved to worship because he beheld, he understood, he valued. And what we learned here is that our worship must be also like Paul's. If it is to be real, we need to know what is the nature of true worship? We need to know that it is historical. 
This actually did happen in space-time history. This isn't a fabricated story. But it's also spontaneous. It is. It's spontaneous. You ought to have moments of spontaneous worship like, thank you, right? Or, or if you want to do a shindig, I don't, I don't care, it doesn't matter to me. The point is, you need to be moved. I need to be moved. If we're breathing, and we say we know this God, oh God, help us be moved like Paul was. Help us be moved. Help us be gospel-centered in our worship. Because if it is, there will be transformation. There will not be this lie of, you know, they said a prayer and, you know, but yeah, they struggle. You know, we're all broken and we all are and we all do struggle. Granted. But there's got to be something there that I'm seeing, ah, that person's a Jesus person. And you're not going to know it unless you, you get your nose in this book and stop reading little clips of scriptures, throw away your daily bread and your devotionals that do not teach you how to read the scriptures. And even if your favorite preacher, oh, he said a wonderful... Check him out with the Word of God. Check him out. Check me out. we got to be Bible people. got to be Bible people. If we're not, our worship won't be true. And the object of our worship has got to be the God of Scripture. Do you know what that means? Oh, man. You're going to have moments in your life where you are being comforted by this God because of His truth that's coming through, through body life. You know, it's all good. And then there's going to be times you're going to be afflicted by this God because you need to be disciplined like I need to be disciplined. There are moments in our lives where it's just like, oh man, this is really uncomfortable, but the God of truth is pressing in on me and I'm going to submit. True worship is radically God-centered, and that is only that, and that is the only worship that God will receive, by the way. Cheap imitations won't do. Just won't do. They damn us. Cheap imitations can damn us, folks. True worship is catapulted from our lives as we behold the greatness as we behold the greatness of our God. And the greatness of our King. And so I want you to stand up right now. I am going to repeat verse 17, and you are going to say amen with me. Sound good? Now, to the King, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Hallelujah. Father, we thank You. We praise You. Be glorified in our lives, through our lives. And help us see you so that we might love you and love others. So that we might know you and make you known. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.